0: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Aram Goodsuzian on the show and we'll be talking about his new book, King of the Court, Bill Russell and the Basketball Revolution. Bill Russell was the first African-American star of professional basketball, and he was completely dominant in his time. He was certainly the best basketball player to ever have stepped on the floor when he played in the NBA in the late 50s and All the way through the late 60s, he played on the greatest franchise in the history of the NBA, that being the Celtics of, again, the late 50s and early 60s. He was also a very complicated character. It was difficult to be a black star at the time. People didn't really know how to do it. And Russell himself was a conflicted personality. He strongly felt the racism of the day. He also had tremendous personal ambition, and he also had personal demons that he wrestled with. And this made for a very interesting life in both professional sports and in the public arena because Russell late in his career became kind of a public intellectual. It's a really fascinating life and it tells us a lot about American culture, about the civil rights movement, about what it means to be a professional athlete in the United States, about fame, about lots of things, and Aram does a terrific job of telling the tale. So without further ado, here is the interview. Hi, Aram. Hi, Marshall. How are you today?
1: I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Good.
0: I'm glad to hear it. I should tell our listeners that we have Aram Goodsuzian on the show today, and we'll be talking about his new book, King of the Court, Bill Russell and the Basketball Revolution. I um, played basketball in um, – let's just say I played for many, many years, and I uh, didn't really know a lot about Bill Russell, to be honest with you, because I uh, grew up um, thinking that uh, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird really were the the people that you should – You should consider the greatest basketball players of all time, but uh, Aram has convinced me that it was, in fact, Bill Russell who dominated like nobody before him. And in a very interesting time, uh, he, of course, was an African-American. And uh, in a time in which being an African-American was a conflicted and complicated thing, and this is also a major theme of the book, but the book also is full of uh, really terrific game narratives, if you like, that kind of thing, and I I do. And it reminded me of some games that I'd I'd, uh, seen and heard about. So it it was a terrific read, and I congratulate Aram for having written the book. Why don't you begin the interview for us, Aram, by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Uh, I teach history at the University of Memphis. I've been here now for uh, just over six years, and I teach courses in uh, African-American history, modern U.S. history, uh, cultural history, uh, and uh, I taught a course on the black athlete in American history, which I started teaching just as I was uh, researching this book. And, uh, teaching that class was actually a really good experience for helping me sort of sharpen a lot of my ideas about what the meaning of sport is in the African American experience, uh, and trying to see sport both as a, uh, as a vehicle for progress as it's historically been known, uh, but also as a reflection, uh, of the society's larger inequalities based on race. And Russell, of course, was a man who was, uh, wrestling with that throughout his life.
0: And, um, I have to ask this. I'm sorry. It may, may seem inappropriate. Do you play basketball? Uh,
1: I have played on and off throughout my life, just pick up. I never played in uh, an It's funny because it's – I mean, played play play quite poorly. I, I, don't I know, was a competitive soccer player for most of my life. So I know, re- that really informed how I thought about sports. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well,
0: reading the book, it sounds like you've played your whole life. <laughs> I can tell you
1: that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you, really, you really know a lot about the game. So um, why don't we begin by just telling uh, Russell's story and the story of professional basketball uh, in the United States and the world. And let's actually begin at the very beginning. How is basketball invented? Because it was one of these invented sports.
1: Yeah. Uh, one, in the first chapter of the book, I try to deal with sort of a digression from Russell's life when he starts to play basketball into the history of basketball itself. And it's invented in the late 19th century. And it is literally invented uh, by James Na- by James Naismith in uh, the 1890s. And it's very much part of the sort of the progressive notion of sport. Um, it's a sport that he invents uh, with the, with the idea of um, some uh, almost a form of social control, uh, and mixing with ideas of muscular Christianity, the notions that, um, that basketball it, uh, can be a way to discipline athletes to keep them active but not hurt over the course of the winter months. Uh, he tries to r- write the rules to limit physical contact, uh, but almost immediately the sport goes totally beyond his objectives. People start playing it throughout the country, it becomes a phenomenon, it spreads through YMCA's and through schools, and people start to innovate uh, in ways that Naismith never imagined. Um, they start to dribble the ball, uh, the game is at a faster pace, uh, people just change the way that it's played. And so it's a sport that's in constant uh, evolution uh, over the course of the 20th century. Um, so when Russell first starts playing in the 1940s in, uh, in Oakland, California, He's playing a game that's already in this state of constant flux and at a time when African-Americans are starting to play the sport in large numbers, uh, a function of the Great Migration, a function of African-Americans migrating to uh, northern urban centers. Because basketball is historically the city game, as it's known. Uh, Whatever ethnic group has uh, populated American cities has typically flourished in basketball. Basketball is known as the Jewish game in the 1920s and the
0: 1930s. -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's talk about Russell himself then. Um, and let's talk about the organize, organization of professional basketball because it, it did start as an effort to uh, provide people with something to play during the winter months, we being in the Northern Hemisphere and so on and so forth. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so we needed to play something indoors, and basketball turned out to be it. W- 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 how did the how did professional basketball start?
1: Well, professional basketball started as pretty much barnstorming. It was uh, touring teams that would travel around. Uh, and professional basketball was always sort of a, a second cousin to college basketball, which had stable crowds and, and particular fan bases and was seen as sort of the more legitimate aspect of, of basketball. Pro basketball had sort of a shady reputation, if you will, through the 20s and the 30s and the 40s. And the, the most famous teams were the teams that traveled from place to place, uh, the Philadelphia Swaz, the Harlem Globetrotters, um, the original Celtics, who were uh, based out of New York. Uh, but they were traveling teams essentially, and they mm-hmm. were constantly changing their rosters. They played all sorts of teams. Um, basketball didn't really have an established pro league until the forerunners of the NBA, which was the Basketball Association of America, which started in the late 40s. Uh, basically, it was a uh, the the BAA started because a group of uh, owners of hockey teams who also controlled arenas had these arenas that were sitting dark whenever there wasn't a hockey game, and they were losing money. So they knew that some people played basketball. They knew that it had a little base of support and they saw the popularity of the college game. So they tried to horn in on that. They tried to... Uh, uh, most of them knew nothing about basketball. In fact, the first commissioner of the Basketball Association of America, who later became the first commissioner of the NBA, was a guy named Maurice Podoloff. And when he became the commissioner of the BAA, he had never seen a basketball game in the That's pretty... <laughs>
0: yeah. That's rich. That's rich. Um, so... Then college game was already well-established, and the professional Mm -hmm. game was uh, in its infancy. Let me ask just one more question about these barnstorming teams. Were they integrated at the time, or were they segregated, and how exactly did that work? They were
1: mostly segregated. The the two great uh, African-American barnstorming teams, one was the uh, Harlem Globetrotters, uh, and the other was a team called the Harlem Rens, which was short for the Renaissance Five. Uh, and these were the, the two most prominent African American teams. Uh, and the Rens were really the great team, especially in the 1930s. Uh, the Globetrotters were becoming more and more visible and well known, not just for their basketball talents by the 1940s, but also because they had started um, entertainment routines, essentially what the Globetrotters are known for now—you know, the, the clowning and the, and the gags. And, uh, but in the 40s and 50s, they combined that with very high-level basketball. Uh, for most African-Americans entering the pros in the late 40s and early 50s, it was assumed that they would play – if they were uh, one of the best players, it was assumed that they would play for the Globetrotters, mm-hmm. not try to enter into the professional leagues. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I see. So let's talk about Russell then. Um, where is Russell from? How did he grow up? What kind of circumstances is he from? And how does his own experience mirror that of many African-Americans in the mid-20th mm-hmm. century?
1: Right. Uh, well, as I mentioned a little bit before, Russell's family participated in, in this great migration. Uh, he grew up in West Monroe, Louisiana. Uh, his father uh, worked in a paper bag factory. Uh, and it, this was a you know, sort of half rural, half urban area that, that he lived in. Uh, but at the age of nine, uh, it was during World War II, uh, he, his family migrated to uh, Oakland, California for the opportunities that were available in uh, shipbuilding industry in particular during World War II in the Bay Area his parents found uh, jobs there. Probably the most important aspect of of Russell's early development besides migration was that his mother passed away when he was old. Uh, and Russell and his older brother were raised by his father. Uh, and this sh- shaped him, I think in two particular ways. One uh, in, was that you know, he was always for the rest of his life trying to protect himself against loss. Uh, he took a lot of comfort in a team and in a family and in personal and close personal relationships, but was also didn't let other people pass that shell because he didn't want to uh, he didn't want to sacrifice that. He didn't want to uh, see the threat of losing them uh, as a result. The other big way I think to shaped him was that it gave his – by making – by his father taking uh, uh, control of the household and raising him and his brother by himself, it gave him a model of manhood. It gave him a model of responsibility and integrity uh, that was very important in terms of how he saw it himself uh, and in terms of how he saw his responsibilities when he entered into a public arena, not just in his private life but in his public
0: life. So he, grows, he actually grows up in Oakland though, is that right?
1: That's correct. Yes. Yeah, he goes for, the book the book for the his from the age of nine on.
0: Yeah, and you have some actually. Uh, the, one of the fascinating things about his athletic life, at least from my perspective, had of kind of grown up in an athletic context. Is you know, uh, I won't be specific about the players that I knew in junior high and high school, uh, who I already knew were going to be great college athletes. Um, but it wasn't clear at all about Russell in high school that he was going to be a great anything. Was it? I mean, he was Mm – why don't you talk a little bit about – that's truly astounding. Why don't you talk a little bit about his athletic career? And I put career in air quotes in high school. (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah, he got – originally we got cut from his JV team when he was a sophomore, uh, only by the good graces of the coach. who sort of took a liking to him. Uh, Did he get to sort of sit on the end of the bench of the JV team? Uh, And he didn't play for the varsity until his senior year. Uh, and didn't start, or me, didn't start for the varsity until his senior year, and he graduated on the half year. He had started uh, his high school uh, career uh, as, uh, in January, so he graduated in a January as well, which means that he missed the end of his team season. Uh, so when, at the end of the, the year, his team won the city championship, but they did it without him. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't a particularly great player by the time he had graduated high school. Um, so, and I think that had an important effect on him in terms of his later life in the sense that basketball never defined him. It, he was—he never considered it the central part of his life in the way that for many young athletes uh, who were great athletes from the time that they were young, um, basketball becomes the central element in their life. And that wasn't the case with Russell. He saw himself as a more of a total person. Very introspective, very shy, immersed himself in books. He, his favorite thing was to go to the public library when he was a kid and to pour over art books by Da Vinci and others. Uh, So he's very different than your typical athlete. The only way that he got a college scholarship was that after he had finished high school in January of 1952, he got an offer to participate on this touring team. Um, And since he was uh, from the city's most established school for basketball, McClyman High School, uh, and because he was the only person who was graduating on the half year, the person who was organizing this tour asked him to come. And it's there where he sort of finally put it together. He realized his his coordination was developing. And he started to understand basketball, not just as an athletic endeavor, but as an intellectual endeavor. He started to really study the game and to understand the ways that he could innovate, the ways that he could uh, reshape the game. Um, And part of what he did was that he went against established basketball wisdom. And this was part of the reason for his greatness. Mm -hmm. In the 1950s, I read a bunch of basketball manuals from the time, coaching manuals and whatnot. They all tell the same thing. They all tell you the same thing. Never leave your feet on defense. And Russell realizes that he can jump to block shots. He has long arms, great leaping ability, exceptional timing. And he starts figuring out when he should be jumping to block shots, uh, which was something that people just didn't do. And it explains his success. It explains how he really started to dominate the game in a new way. He innovated on defense at a time when everyone else was focused on offense. Uh, and he t- essentially took away the easy layup out of the game once he perfected how this was done. So when he got to college, uh, he went to the University of San Francisco. By his freshman year, it was clear that he got through this this epiphany, if you will, uh, in terms of understanding how to play basketball that turned him into very quickly a dominant player.
0: Mm-hmm. Did people say at the time about this um, jumping on defense, that is this shot-blocking uh Did they say that this was somehow illegitimate or something?
1: Even his own coach, uh, Phil Wolpert, who coached him at the University of San Francisco and was as open-minded, as racially liberal, as uh, innovative a coach as existed at the time. When Russell first started leaping to block shots in games, he would chastise Russell for doing this. He would say, this was uh, you know, that's not the way that you play defense. Uh, and this sort of led to some of Russell's resentment festering against uh, his coach at the university, that he felt like he, his gifts were unappreciated, even as he was driving them toward greatness. In his junior and senior year, uh, Russell's team won the N- uh, the NCAA championship, and they were basically basketball unknowns before this time. But they went on a 55-game winning streak uh, between his junior and, and his senior years, and two consecutive NCAA titles.
0: And uh, were there uh, many African-American players in college at the time?
1: Uh, No. Um, In the West Coast, it was maybe under 10% of the college basketball teams, uh, excuse excuse me, uh, of under 10% of the players on college basketball teams were were African-American. Only two teams in the nation started three basketball players uh, in Russell's junior year, and that was University of San Francisco, the team that he played for, and UCLA, which was another excellent team. post mm-hmm. uh, um, schools had one or two uh, black athletes, mm-hmm. uh, and typically they were stars because they, were the only, they would reserve spots on their roster only for the best of the African-American.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, we should also say, I mean, Russell undergoes a tremendous physical transformation between the time he was roughly 15 and the time he's 20. I mean, he grew something like 10 mm-hmm. inches or something, didn't he? I mean, I think you say in the book that uh, one year he grew four inches?
1: Yeah, in his senior year of uh, of high school, he really sprouts. Yeah, uh, by by the time he graduates high school or starts at USF, he's close to yeah, he's maybe about six eight by then. But he but he shoots up. Uh, he and he goes from being at the same time. Luckily for him, he finds his coordination. He was very gangly and awkward when he was a seventh grader, eighth grader, ninth grader. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I've got to think it's got to hurt, almost hurt to grow for it to someone here. I mean, that's got to be a painful process. Um, I know I have young kids at home and they're growing pretty fast, but still, that's, that sounds really, really, I mean, I, I was, t- I'm tall, uh, and, and ungainly, and, and I can tell you that, uh, in those years, it's, um, you can hardly find your feet. But uh, yeah, he did incredible things. He was also—I mean—one of the things you mentioned in the book, and I think this is important to say, is that he brought a level of athleticism to the game. And we, you know, I want to avoid the stereotype about African Americans and athleticism, but this guy, you know, even among people who are great athletes, was a great athlete. He he could do oh, yeah. lots of things that um that other people couldn't do. Like you mentioned, that he's a high jumper, and he has this really strange style, but still, he's great at yeah. it.
1: In college, he was a champion high jumper. A lot of people thought that he would be the first person to break the seven-foot barrier in high jumping. Uh, And he probably could have done it if he gave it any practice whatsoever. He literally never practiced it. He would just show up at the meet, do this sort of awkward front flop over, and jump 6'8", (laughs) 6'9", which really speaks to an incredible leaping ability. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think that one of the things that he did was he convinced people that you could be both big – And uh, very athletic and graceful because it's kind of counterintuitive that these things can go together because usually you see big people and they're kind of lumbering. But if you see uh, someone like Russell, I mean, I've had the opportunity to play against some uh, awfully large people who are um, fast and strong and jump very well and just basically do everything better than I can do it even though they're much bigger. And, you know, this – this kind of body type and this notion that there are these people out there who can be six foot nine and weigh 225 or 230 pounds and be really fast and jump really well and be tremendously coordinated, you just don't find those people that often, but they exist. And he was really the first one, I think, to play basketball. Because if you think about someone like, I'm thinking of George Mikan, who, who was mm-hmm. a great player, but he really was lumbering. Mm-hmm. He was a huge lumbering right. guy. Um, yeah. but, but he was no Russell. I mean, he didn't, you know, he wasn't as fast or as strong, or couldn't jump as well, and he couldn't shoot as well, and he couldn't do any of those things as well. So, yeah, I mean, Russell really is a kind of revolution in the sense that people are understanding that there are these people out there that can do all of these things at once. And, that, you know, he was he was sort of the first of them. So let's get him um, – uh, I want to talk a little bit about his college career. What happened when uh, a team like USF, even as famous and great as they were, what happened when they toured in the, um they had to play in the South?
1: Well, they only visited the South uh, and the actual South once, and that was when they went to uh, they went to play a game against Xavier University in New Orleans. Uh, basically, because it was another Jesuit institution, and it was a Jesuit institution that was uh, trying to build racial goodwill. It was sort of in this liberal Catholic tradition, uh, and uh, they had tried to integrate their seating uh, at the games that year. And to try to play against teams which had uh, African American athletes, um, so this was the one time when uh, University of San Francisco they went on this long national tour over there, winter break in Russell's senior season, uh, and part of it went to uh, to, uh, to Xavier, and Russell was sort of uh, he was torn. He was it's his home state, of course, uh, and part of him was very resentful of the prejudices and the segregation that he had to endure, as you might imagine. Uh, the, the rest of his teammates stayed at a, a downtown hotel but he and his black teammates had to stay at the dorms uh, at, a, at a nearby black institution um, and then during the game they were, they were heckled and so on um, and even the ref he thought uh, was mocked him based on his race uh, yet at the same time Russell in the 50s and maybe even into the early 60s was very conscious of his role as sort of a image ambassadors or the the notion that had been carried on by people like Joe Lewis and Jesse Owens and Jackie Robinson, the notion that black athletes have to be, uh to use the term that was used with uh Lewis a lot, a credit to their race. They have to be uh seen as humble and dignified and and foster racial goodwill themselves. Uh so uh Russell was very conscious of this and he tried very hard to restrain himself. Um but he's kinda of stored all the resentments from trips such as this one inside him. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm glad you mentioned the word resentment because it comes up again and again in uh, Russell's life. And even in college, he has a conflicted relationship with uh, his, by the lights of the times, very liberal coach who also sounds like an interesting mm-hmm. figure. Maybe you could talk just a little bit about that.
1: Sure. Uh, yeah, Phil Wolpert, who's his coach at uh, University of San Francisco, as I mentioned, is probably as liberal and as open-minded a coach as existed in the 1950s. Here's a guy who uh, was breaking taboos by putting uh, by starting three blacks and sometimes playing four blacks on the court at the same time. This was just something that wasn't done in the 1950s in big-time college basketball. Um, and Russell recognizes that. But at the same time, he feels like Wolpert never, um, never, never um, pumped him up, never um, promoted him to the press, that uh, he didn't fully appreciate what Russell brought to the team, uh, from Wolpert's standpoint, uh, he saw this proud, uh, uh, very enthusiastic guy, and he figured that he didn't need any extra reinforcement. But for Russell, underneath that was that sensitive kid who'd lost his mom when he was 12 years old, who wanted public praise, who wanted the, the sense of recognition, even if he created a shell that, that made it seem like he didn't want that. Uh, so there was this personal tension, and they were friends beyond their college years. Uh, Russell would uh, would go and visit uh, Wolpert all the time into the 1960s uh, and into the early 70s before Wolver passed away. But there was still the sense of sort of buried gripes that was very sort of a prevalent theme in Russell's early professional, in his college career and his early professional career. Those who knew him uh, with the Celtics or at USF, in the interviews that I did, most of them were shocked that Russell could remember a lot of these details and a lot of these flights. They didn't come up during that time. He stored them, he saved them, and then he brought them out later in the mid-1960s when he really started to talk about uh, the racism that sport reflected as he saw it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean he seems like a very conflicted character and 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 therefore all the more fascinating because he really does he, – he does hold these resentments for a long time and he, he, he will occasionally say, as you point out in the book, something that really is quite hurtful about people whom he I think really loves I can't, you know, but, but he'll say these things that you're just like, whoa, that, where did that come from? And uh, and I think this <laughs> happens throughout his life where he's just kind of at, at – uh, he's, he's in conflict with himself about, about the way he feels about certain people. But let's go on to his uh, pro career. Um, uh, was it common for black athletes at the time to go on to pro careers in basketball?
1: Uh, yes and no, mostly no. Uh, there were African-Americans uh, in the NBA since 1950. Um, each team, uh, with the exception of the St. Louis Hawks, had a black player by the time Russell came to the NBA. Although when Russell joined the Celtics uh, in 1956, he was the only African American on the Celtics at the time. Though the Celtics had, had black players beforehand, uh, I, I believe that 15 blacks played in the NBA in Russell's rookie season. This is when there was an 18. Uh, league, so it' was relatively small. So African Americans were playing in the NBA by the time Russell came. What made Russell distinctive was that he was the first African American star. Uh, as I write in the book, Russell didn't desegregate the NBA, but in some ways he integrated it. He was uh, in that sense, he was the Jackie Robinson of basketball, uh, the first real star, the first team to or me, the first player to drive his team to a championship. The first to generate so much publicity, the first to be associated with his team in the public realm uh, on a higher level uh, than the black role players who had preceded him in the NBA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So, and he, uh, what kind of relationship did he have with Red Arbach? And can you tell us a little bit about Red Arbach? At
1: the sure, uh, Arbach is, is a fascinating character in his own right, of course, uh, and probably the greatest coach in NBA history. Um, he's a guy who. Uh, is you know, consumed by basketball, consumed by winning, like Russell. And this is sort of where they find an alliance, in the sense that they will both sort of know what it takes to win and and want to do whatever it takes to help a team win. And Arvac has this reputation as something of a dictator or an autocrat. But in actuality, he was a guy who sought players who were intelligent and self-driven uh, and catered his approach to those players and really listened to them. Uh, it wasn't uncommon for him in a player huddle to ask the team what he thought they should do next uh, and then to make a final decision based on the input that he got from players. Uh, so in many ways, he was the most democratic of coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had a very interesting relationship with Russell. Um, as you might know, Russell recently published a book called Red and Me, uh, which was a memoir of his relationship with Red Arbuck mm-hmm. and it, it's basically a story of their friendship. But it's ironic that in the mid '60s, when Russell published his first memoir, uh, which was a book called Go Out for Glory, there's a line in it about him and Red Arbuck, which says, "We are not particularly friends." <laughs> and then, you know, thirty, forty years later, he's writing a book that says, you know, that's about their friendship. So it was always a a professional relationship and a friendship, and going back and forth on those two things. They often uh, had areas of disagreement. One of them, from Russell's perspective, was that Arbuck was, while he was very open to signing and playing and using black players, was a little bit insensitive on issues such as uh, segregation. When, in, uh, for instance, in the Celtics in 1958, we're on a tour uh, before a preseason tour, and we're playing in Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, the black players. We were told that they had to stay at a separate hotel, and they didn't notice until they got to, uh, to Charlotte. And, uh, Arbach tried to talk to him about it and said, you know, I understand. I'm, I'm sorry about this. It won't happen again, but we gotta play this game. And, uh, you know, I understand. I'm Jewish, so I understand prejudice. And Russell says, oh, yeah? Well, what hotel are you staying at, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Ouch. <laughs> so, that was the that was the kind of incident that really would sort of reveal both you know how they their shared ideas and their commitment to winning, but at the same time uh, how they they each forced the other one to evolve. And they were two strong-willed characters who really came to understand each other. Uh, and really, by the end of Russell's playing career, when he was the player coach at the Celtics in the late sixties, uh, that's really when their friendship really flourished because Russell so appreciated the way that Arbach would really let him make his, make his own mistakes and not and not impede. Uh, and that was somewhat surprising. Uh-huh,
0: uh-huh. They, they aren't – I don't know how to put this diplomatically, but neither one of them is, a, is, is exactly a nice guy, if you know what I mean. I no, mean they're, they're, that's absolutely
1: true. Yeah, they, they neither are, is warm and fuzzy. No, yeah. no, neither
0: one of them is warm and fuzzy. Uh, and I can only imagine that they generated a lot of uh, heat and perhaps some light together. But let's talk about those early Celtics teams, how dominant um, – Was Russell in the um, late 50s and early 60s?
1: I think he was dominant, especially in the sense that people were unprepared for what Russell brought to the program. And even when he first arrived in the NBA, most people had never seen him play. Uh, And that speaks to the era. Uh, Because he was playing on the West Coast and because the East Coast was the media center and New York was the center of basketball and, and the USF had only played there once. A lot of people have never seen him play. Uh, uh, most college basketball games were not televised nationally, uh, or a few televised, uh, college basketball games were televised nationally. So people kind of didn't know what to expect. And there's sort of one in particular individual story that sort of captures Russell's larger impact. There's a guy who played for the Philadelphia Warriors named Neil Johnston, who was a center. Uh, three times he bought the NBA in scoring. And he was a short guy for a center. He was six feet, eight inches tall. And he had this sort of flat, Running hook that you drive into the lane and shoot this little flip shot, if you will, and no one could really block it because he got it off quickly and people didn't. Again, people didn't really leap to block shots. But Russell, every time he played against Johnson, just dominated him because he block. He, he said Russell later said that he could block nine out of every ten of Johnson's shots. He finally started letting him take it every once in a while just so he could block it when he really needed to block it. Uh, the first time they played against each other, Johnson didn't score for the first 42 minutes of the game. This guy was one of the leading scorers in the NBA. Uh, the second time they played, he didn't he didn't score for the entire first half. So Russell completely dominated him. And in a lot of ways, that was sort of the generational sea change that was going on. A guy like Johnson could dominate in the early early and mid-50s. Once the Russell revolution begins, he's kind of rendered obsolete uh, within a few years. Mm-hmm. So that really speaks to Russell's impact and just in terms of how he's shaping NBA defense and how he's shaping the game as a whole, because all of a sudden you can't take that little flip shot. It makes the layup harder. It means you have to shoot from further out. You have to be faster and more athletic uh, if you want to survive in the NBA. So it it ironically makes offense in the NBA more dynamic and more creative Mm -hmm. uh, to deal with these defensive innovations. Mm -hmm. As for the Celtics, what Russell provides for his team is their missing puzzle piece. The Celtics already had a reputation as sort of a run-and-gun, fast-paced, offensively gifted team. And that was uh, was really centered upon two players. One was Bob Cousy, who was one of the stars of the NBA, a very crafty and and spectacular point guard. And the other was Bill Sharman, who was probably the NBA's best shooter, his shooting guard. Uh, And they played a very fast-paced style. And really what they were missing was someone who could get rebounds and who could play defense the way that Russell did. Once they had Russell, they were a juggernaut. Uh, they won the NBA title in Russell's rookie season. They only lost it in the second season because uh, Russell sprained his ankle during the NBA finals. Um, and by his third year, they're beginning a streak of eight consecutive titles. Uh, in Russell's 13th season, in the NBA, his team won the, NBA, won the NBA championship, 11 of those times. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So Russell becomes very famous. Uh, how does he handle it?
1: Um, at first... He's very, you know, as he's becoming more, as his notoriety is increasing, he's very sensitive again to this idea of image politics, of, of being an ambassador of his race, of uh, uh, making sure that he projects himself as humble and selfless and, and praising his teammates uh, and not causing a stir, if you will. But what, by the early 1960s, by 1963, 1964 especially, um, the civil rights movement is starting to spur in him. Sense of sort of a personal crisis. Asking uh, he's asking sort of what it all means. What's the point of being a sports celebrity? On the court, people cheer him and they celebrate him. Off the court, he's just another black person in a racist society. Uh, and he sees the sacrifices of a civil rights activist, and he wonders, well, what am I doing to help this cause? Uh, and so. Especially in this period from about 63 to 65, he's undergoing this really this time of turmoil. and it's shaping his personal life as well. His marriage is starting to fall apart. Uh, he's starting to engage in extramarital affairs uh, in ways that he hadn't before. Uh, and he is withdrawing into himself. He's creating sort of a – especially in public, it's at this point that he starts to refuse to sign autographs because he sees them as just sort of an empty display of celebrity worship that he wants to be considered as an individual, not as just as a commodity. And he also starts to uh, speak in public in ways that no black athlete had ever really done before, in which he's talking about uh, the racism uh, that exists within sport and within society. Just to give you some examples, he starts to defend Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam at a time when few black public figures uh, would do so. Uh, He questions uh, the strategy of nonviolence. He calls it... So something like this is a, a passive kick, and what if it doesn't work? If that does, doesn't work, Martin Luther King has failed as a leader. This was really something that no black athlete ever said prior to this time. Um, he accuses the NBA of having a quota system that each team has only four or five blacks on its roster, and at the end of the bench, they never have black players because they only you know, want blacks who are going to be stars. If it's uh, on the end of the bench, they're always going to fill out their roster with, with white players. Uh, And this causes a firestorm in the NBA. So in all these different ways, he's starting to challenge the orthodoxy. He's starting to challenge what accepted behavior for black athletes, if you will. Uh, And it's spawned by this sense of personal crisis. Mm -hmm.
0: He seems like the kind of person who loves to make life difficult for himself. I mean, he really sort of of fouls his own nest, especially – Uh, In Boston, which is – I lived in Boston for quite a while, and I can tell you that the taint of racism is not gone from that place, and I can only imagine what it was like in the 60s. And he uh, says some rather impolitic things about the fans and the people who run the organization, and he suffered Mm -hmm. for it. Yeah, I mean he was – again, reading your book – well, maybe I'll ask you to talk about it. uh, He doesn't seem to have been really very well-loved by the sports establishment in Boston.
1: It's interesting. The season ticket holders and those who were close to the Celtics loved Russell. They appreciated him, and many of them knew him as a person and and, and real and and very much appreciated. Him. Those were very close on sort of the day to day scene with the Celtics. But that was a, a very small segment of Boston sports culture because the Celtics weren't they weren't ingrained in the sports fabric of New England in the same way. It's a, as you know from living in Boston, it's a baseball town and it's a hockey town. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and the, the Celtics. Through under ten thousand people for most of most of festivals uh, years, uh, they wouldn't they wouldn't fill up the Boston Garden until not even sometimes in the early rounds of the playoffs, not until they were really threatening uh, to win the championship or threatening to lose the championship. Only in those last crucial games would you tend to see the the Garden fill up. So it took a really long time for basketball to become associated with the city uh, in a way that was very different from a city such as uh, St. Louis or. Um, uh, in indiana or in new york you know, uh, the the knicks were a terrible team in the 60s but had a very loyal fan base because basketball and new york were entwined with each other um the other aspect of uh, russell in boston is that he became very active in the city in the city's own civil rights movement uh and helped to bring attention to the fact of racial injustice outside the South uh in a, and in a very prominent and public way in boston the battleground in the 60s especially over schools uh there isn't the schools are technically segregated, but they are de facto segregated, and this is the, what the NAACP in Boston is challenging. Russell goes to the school board meetings. He speaks about it to national publications such as Sports Illustrated and the Saturday Evening Post. Um, he becomes Boston's most visible critic on the issue of race uh, to in a nationwide form.
0: Yeah, and then um, sort of later in his career, um, he becomes – and you know I'd forgotten this entirely. He becomes a player coach. What exactly does that mean? Do we have those anymore? Are they no i I don't really follow the NBA closely, but I don't remember any recent player coaches
1: I can't remember who the last player coach was. I want to say it was Lenny Wilkins in the nineteen seventies and I could be wrong about that it sounds like, a, it sounds like uh, a were, very
0: I, it sounds like a very sixties thing you know, like kind of communal management or something I don't you know again I, please please talk a little bit about how about player coaches
1: sure there have been. In the '60s, there are two examples that I can, that I can remember. There had been a couple of player coaches before Russell, but it was it, it was even then it was rare. On the other hand, it wasn't like a modern NBA team now has you know practically a coach for every player. There's five or six guys at the end of, at the end of the bench at least. Uh, at the time, you know every NBA team had a coach and a trainer, and that was it. Uh, so in 1966, Arbach is ready to retire from being the coach. He's also the general manager of the team, and he's exhausted. Uh, and so he, he withdraws from day-to-day coaching to become the general manager, and he's looking for a coach, uh, and he tries to get some of the Celtics to it since retired uh, to take over behind the bench, uh, Bob Cousy, Tom Hines, and some others, and they all declined for various reasons. They all have various Uh So he starts to look outside the team, and but he also gauges Russell's interest because at this point, Russell is a 10-year veteran in the NBA, and he knows that whoever he gets for coach has to be someone who is going to motivate Russell. Uh, uh, at this stage in Russell's career, he's barely practicing. He gives so much of his energy during games uh, and he hates practice. He doesn't, he kind of sees it as pointless. That um, he So he knows whoever he, he gets coach has to build a strong personal relationship with Russell. The Arbok Russell dynamic had been the strength of the Celtics for so long. Uh, and as the, as that season goes on and goes into the playoffs in 1966, Arbok. Arbach- And both Russell reconsiders his uh, originally he decided he didn't want the position, and then ultimately takes it, uh, realizing that it gives a couple opportunities. It gives him a chance to take on a new challenge and perhaps revive his his career to keep him motivated uh, with another challenge. And it also gives him a chance to keep the Celtics coach within the Celtics fraternity. They were that was a team that was very conscious of seeing itself as a family. As, uh, as a group of, of, of loyal alumni and you know, people who were who associated with the team very closely. There was only one major trade that Arbuck pulled off during Russell's time. So this was a team that stayed very consistent in terms of its personnel. And finally, Russell wanted, uh, whether he acknowledged it or not, had an opportunity to become the first uh, head coach, uh, African American head coach of any major professional team sport. He was very much a barrier breaker in this regard as well. Uh, so when he started uh, as a player coach in 67, he kind of ran it the way that uh, maybe you played in a basketball league where you had a guy who was the team captain and, and basically put out the lineup and and you know, made adjustments as it was going on, but was also playing at the same time. And Russell played most of the game uh, and got help from his teammates. So especially by his second year, uh, after Russell realized that he couldn't do it by himself in his first year, he really started to rely on his core veteran teammates to help him with the substitutions, to help him with the strategy. He kind of ran the team. He was the coach, and certainly he had the ultimate authority, but at the same time, it was kind of run in a very democratic way, which is pretty extraordinary to think about it. This level of basketball. Uh, this was a, a group of, t- of teammates who were more or less policing themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and it worked. I mean, uh, in Russell's first season as player coach, 1966 67, they did not win the NBA title for the first time in eight years. But in, in his last two seasons, uh, both times, quite improbably, they won the NBA championship.
0: see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, let's talk a little bit about um, a person who is really Russell's foil in life and in the book, and that is uh, Wilt the Stilt Chamberlain. Um, being from Kansas, I, had great, I have great love for Wilt Chamberlain, so I, I can think nothing bad about him. But why don't you talk a little bit about Chamberlain because he really is kind of the – in many ways, he's the – I won't call him – he's not the anti-Russell, but he's, he's quite different than Russell.
1: Yeah, um, and maybe the anti-Russellist is too much, but they were certainly, as you mentioned, foils to each other. I mean, where Russell was the ultimate team player and who focused on defense and rebounding, Chamberlain was the ultimate individualist, whose offensive statistics were just simply mind-blowing. This guy was a guy who was well over seven feet tall, uh, strong as as an ox, and if Russell was a coordinated tall man, Chamberlain was that times three. He was, you know, in you could make a case that he, had he entered into an individual sport, we would consider him the greatest individual athlete of all time. There's never never been anyone, I don't think ever, who had his combination of size, speed, strength, and coordination. Um, here's a guy who in his rookie season is averaging 38 points and 28 rebounds a game. And by his third season, is averaging 50 points a game. Uh, and it's in his third season that he scores uh, legendarily 100 points in one game. There's never been an offensive talent or or a basketball talent like Will Chamberlain. What Chamberlain does for Russell is a few things. One is that he in some ways elevates Russell in the public eye. All of a sudden, Russell in his early years had been somewhat unappreciated uh, in the public realm. By the early to mid-1960s, when Chamberlain enters the NBA, the the Russell-Chamberlain dynamic, a rivalry, becomes the central narrative over the course of the 1960s in the NBA. They they compel so much fascination because Russell has this reputation as a defensive wizard. Chamberlain is an unstoppable force on offense. How is that going to work? Uh, And their games often showcase Chamberlain's incredible offensive skills. It's not like Russell necessarily slows them down most of the time. But the Celtics keep winning title after title. Um, So Russell's reputation soars because he's seen as, in some ways, negating the threat of Will Chamberlain. At the same time, the way that they handle themselves in public, and the way that they project who they are to the, in the public is, is very different. Chamberlain always sees himself as a commodity, always sees himself as a great basketball player, because he, there's been attention on him as a superstar in basketball since he was in eighth grade growing up in Philadelphia. Uh, and there's this sense of you know, uh, the commercialism of sport that infects Chamberlain from even when he's in high school, when, when he goes to Kansas to go play college basketball, people assume that he's getting some kind of deal, some kind of under the table payment. Uh, that it's the first national recruiting campaign for a basketball player, really ever, and it, and it's his recruiting campaign is the subject of media of a media frenzy. So, and Chamberlain, oh, when he becomes a professional, does things like he. Uh, he, issues, uh, he says he's going to retire after his rookie season just as a way to get a new contract. Uh, he uh, cuts an R&B single. He appears on TV all over the place. Uh, he issues outlandish pronouncements knowing that it will get him media attention that will keep his, his name in the papers and will make him rich. But he also, by his, the mid-60s, is starting to acquire another reputation, is that of uh, uh, of if Russell is the ultimate winner, that he's the ultimate loser, the guy who can never elevate his team. You know, he he forces his team to adapt to him rather than adapting to his team. Uh, and because they lose so many close games to the Celtics and so many, uh, and and so many disappointments for his Philadelphia teams. And then later he plays for the San Francisco warriors. Um, he starts to acquire this reputation as the guy who can't win it all. And through the '60s, it's very frustrating to him. And it starts to seep into how he thinks about it and how the public thinks about him he says in one article that he wrote for sports, so, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, after a while, defeat and victory smell the same in professional basketball locker room. Uh, then, you know, winning doesn't mean the same to him that it means to Bill Russell or to the other Boston. Celtics.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me from, uh, again, from a reading of your book that the best thing that ever happened to Bill Russell's image was in fact, Will Chamberlain, because Russell Absolutely. was a very, he was a very complicated guy. And I think on his own, uh, you know it's difficult to actually assess him. You know if he's a, you know a, a general force for good. I mean really a complicated person. But um, Chamberlain was such a whiner. That's <laughs> it. You know really <laughs> just such a whiner that he, uh, he, as great as he was, it just makes um, it makes Bill Russell look like uh, you know kind of a choir boy compared to. But let's let's actually talk a little bit about the choir boy thing because I, I think um, if I could just say something, it may sound a little bit critical, but I don't mean it to be. I think you kind of let uh, Russell off the hook. For his personal life, because if I read it correctly, he basically abandoned his family.
1: Yes and no. Uh, yes, he abandoned his family over the, over the short term. He treated his wife terribly. Uh, he engaged in extramarital affairs, which he, which in his second memoir uh, Russell talks about quite frankly. Um, and when he, after his playing career is done, he moves to Los Angeles by himself uh, and leaves his family behind. Uh, but then as his divorce is becoming final, uh, after he's gone to Los Angeles, it forces him to become a more active parent in a way that he never had to be when he was actually living with his kids. So his kids would come out in the summer, and ultimately his daughter ends up staying with him as, and one of his sons for quite some time. So in the 70s, after his playing career is done, he, he ironically becomes a better parent after for, after this uh basically leaving them behind uh, originally when he moved to Los Angeles and then later to Seattle. Uh, it's a complicated relationship. Uh, his daughter is extremely loyal to him and only says nice things about him. Uh, his sons are more silent on the topic, so I don't know to what extent. Um, it's difficult to say, I guess, in that regard, uh, yeah, what their have, relationship
0: I mean, did he have any – at one point, I remember the phrase in the book, you say that he grew tired of traditional marriage, if I – I mean, it be the exact quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, right. But but was it really so calculated or did he just want to um go cat around? I mean I don't, I
1: don't know that it was calculated. I don't think it was calculated. Uh we didn't really think about it so yes, much. Yes, he did want to be a t- yes, he did want a Tomcat. i yeah. I hope that I I'm not letting him off the hook in that in that regard. I think I will at one point say his personal life was filled with selfish ambivalence. Yeah. So I, right. I don't think yeah. that I'm No, that's right. No, that's right. <laughs> and they anyway, were trying to excuse his behavior. But I'm trying to explain his behavior at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> trying to understand uh and that's kind of how he rationalizes it to a certain extent too. He says that you know, no, oh, no two people can stay married for a long period of time. But that's really right. you know his way of, not willing to sacrifice his personal uh, impulses. Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: Then you know, after he retires, he has this period where he kind of he attempts to and, and successfully, I guess I would say, become a public intellectual. What does he do? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: It's kind of fascinating, especially in the early 70s after he retires from uh, the NBA and he moves to Los Angeles. He tries to get into acting, uh, but really he becomes in a lot of ways this symbol of integrity uh, because in in the sports world, by the early 70s, there's this disillusion going on with sport. Uh, there's you know, the social protests that are coming out of the revolt of the black athlete. Uh, there is someone like Joe Namath or Will Chamberlain, who are basically just sort of media-puffed celebrities. Uh And Russell, because he's been such a complicated individual, because he's been such an ultimate winner, and because he's a guy who has a reputation for always speaking his mind and never checking back on that, becomes the symbol of sort of, you know that whatever's coming out of Russell's mouth is what he believes in. Uh, there's a, I have a quote from an executive of AT&T. He works as, as a spokesman for AT&T. He says about Russell, he's a strange guy. He doesn't say anything unless he believes it. <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs>
1: and in the plastic age of the of the 1970s, that it, maybe that is strange, I guess. Yeah. But it's sort of what explains Russell's sort of interesting notoriety in the mid-70s. And he comes, kind of gets comfortable with being a public figure, in a way that he never was as a sports celebrity because it's on his own terms. And that's kind of ironic. That he, you know, he kind of dives into celebrity culture and exploits it for what it's worth in a way that he never did as an athlete. And here's where, really where he owes Chamberlain. I mean, Chamberlain paved the way for him to do this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, he makes it acceptable for a basketball star to do something like this.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, and uh, so he has a lot of different gigs in the 70s and the 80s and into the 90s. Uh, he writes a column, is that right?
1: Yeah, he writes uh, a column for the Seattle Times after his, uh, he coached the, C- the Seattle Sonics from 73 to 77. And after he gets fired from his coaching uh, responsibilities, he starts to write a column for the Seattle Times uh, almost every Sunday. And the interesting thing about that column is it almost never has anything to do with basketball. He writes about Everything under the sun, um, about, uh, the military, about politics, about homosexuality, about, you name the issue, uh, he engages in it in one way or the other. He does interviews with people. He's just, you know, sort of writing as a curious individual and as a public intellectual. Mm-hmm. He penned his second memoir. He does it with, uh, Taylor Branch, who's now known for the, he wrote, wrote the America and the King series, a uh, three volume history of the civil rights movement through Martin Luther King. Uh, at the end this book is called Second Wind. It is probably the best. Memoir by an athlete that, huh. that exists. It's it's the maybe the best book that I've ever written on, uh, that I've ever read on sports. Uh, it's really a, a poetically done, very insightful book. Um, he appears all over television. He goes on the talk show circuit. Um, yeah, he he really becomes a public intellectual as you said.
0: And he kind of softens his hard edge. He he comes to be a kind mm-hmm. a kind of wizened old man of basketball. He gets gray and and he have issues pronouncements. But they're never very angry especially, anymore.
1: Especially by the turn of the century. Uh, there's so much, you know, and a lot of this is because, you know, for someone like of of our generation, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson are, are the, you know, war of the NBA's history, right? Uh, so we think of the NBA as this massive commercial endeavor that's full of money. Uh, but in Russell's age, that wasn't the case. And by the 1990s, especially with the turn of the century, Russell's realizing that, you know, he can – Harness this for his own ends, and because of his reputation, not, really what he starts to mute is his reputation as a critic, as a as a public uh, scourge, if you will. And what he really starts to elevate is his reputation as a great winner, uh, and that is how he markets himself, and that is how the team around him markets him. Uh, markets him. He writes a you know, rather than writing these very introspective or, or political memoirs like his first two, he writes a third memoir called Russell Rules, which is. Uh, a handbook for leadership that's designed to be used in, in in corporate settings and it's designed to take his basketball anecdotes and apply them into the corporate world mm-hmm. uh and he gets these gigs where he you know he gets ten thousand fifteen thousand dollars a pop to go speak it, uh, yeah. to some boardroom mm-hmm. uh and uh he really starts to consciously market himself as a commodity uh in a way that he'd for so long he'd resisted it um but I mean, who complain yeah, there's right, just no. a lot of money to be made on right. on telling you the story of your yeah, life right, that's right. And quite
0: a an ama- an amazing life it was actually a totally amazing life yeah. so what what's uh what is Mr Russell up to today
1: oh. um he has from public eye in the last few years sadly uh he he had a long time companion a woman named Marilyn Knolls, who he had met in the, uh, in the early nineties and she just recently passed away. Mm-hmm. And apparently uh, that very much shattered uh, she given she delivered him a lot of peace that existed in his life and he you know finally felt sort of relaxed you know on a personal level I guess in terms of his relationships that didn't exist prior to that uh, and when she passed away in particular Russell was starting to retreat a little bit from uh, some of the public activities uh, that he uh, engaged in but he's still sort of a spokesman for the NBA now the uh, the uh, NBA Finals MVP wins the Bill Russell Trophy, so uh, you might have noticed that Russell is on hand anytime a team has a chance of clinching the NBA championship. Now uh, to deliver to, to deliver the trophy himself, uh, and he continues to do corporate gigs and, and things like that. So did he he did hasn't he, disappeared from the public eye. I was going to say, did he have any? I should also say that he is very active in uh, the initiative of mentoring. He really he works with the National Mentoring Partnership, oh, um, and uh, that's his sort of pet cost.
0: Did you have anything to say about the election of Barack Obama? You know,
1: I... it's interesting that he came up a little bit because uh, I know there was an NPR report, and I want to say there was an article as well uh, that I also read about. Um, you know that he provided one of these early models of black leadership um, at a time when, when a few African Americans had this had a position of leadership over an integrated aspect of the United States. Mm-hmm. So. It popped up a little bit, and also because Obama is a basketball fan. I know that Russell recently was, you know, was uh, part of the big group of NBA stars who had gone to uh, the White House to play uh, during on Obama's birthday. I can't resist so, saying
0: this again. i probably said it a hundred times on this show, but I used to play basketball with Barack Obama. I did. That's all that cool. right. I did. Yeah, I did. Uh uh-huh. I did. Yeah, yeah. And I've never Back met when he was Bill. Married the bomber? <laughs> I've, n- I've never, I've never met Bill Russell. So he's – so, <laughs> so Brock's got one over on me. Um, so uh, let, let me ask you what, what I, I think is kind of a fitting uh, end to our discussion of the book, and, and that is just simply this. You know, I played basketball for a long time, and, and I really was almost <laughs> addicted to it. And uh, you know, after I would retired, and that was just a few years ago, I really mm-hmm. wondered whether I ever liked it. Did, did Bill Russell like to play basketball?
1: Bill Russell liked what he got out of basketball. After he retired from the NBA. As far as I know, he has never again played in an organized five on five game of basketball in his life.
0: Here, if I could just stop you right there for a second, because uh, in in stark contrast, uh take someone like Larry Bird who built the gymnasium at his home, or uh mm-hmm. someone like Magic Johnson who still plays. He still has this mm-hmm. pickup game that's legendary in um
1: in Los Angeles.
0: So so Russell threw it off, huh? Go ahead, keep talking about Russell and his ambivalence about it.
1: For Russell yeah, for Russell Basketball was a means to an end. He, he liked the rewards of basketball. And I don't simply mean the material rewards. I mean that he loved winning. He loved cooperation. He loved to work with, with his team. Um, but he hated practice even when he was in the NBA. Uh, uh, he, he really concentrated all of his energies on games. If it wasn't about the competition, if it wasn't about the winning, then basketball didn't mean anything to him. Basketball was only important as a vehicle for victory. And that was sort of how he proved himself. Um, you know, the basketball brought him the recognition, the sense of self worth, the sense of pride, uh the sense of accomplishment. Uh that as a kid, when he was poor and his mom was dead and uh he was a gawky teenager, that didn't exist. So basketball gave him a vehicle to the, into a way of life, a way of thinking about it, himself and his world that was only valuable insofar as what a victory brought him.
0: I mean, he says – I think you quote this. I, again, I can't remember exactly, but he says, I I um, I don't want to be known as a basketball player. I want to be known as a person who plays basketball. Is that right? Or mm-hmm. a man who plays basketball. I think he uses the word man.
1: He often uses – I mean, manhood and, and the word man comes up again and again in my book because that is sort of central to how he thinks of himself. He always says – and on his tombstone, he uh, he writes in Go for Glory. He says, let it be – and he just wants his epitaph his, uh, to, to read. Uh, here lies Bill Russell, a man that uh, he wants to be considered as an individual, as a human being, and that includes you know the, the complexities of a human being. That includes the frailties. He, he's not concerned with puffing himself up in terms of an image. Rather, he wants to be considered as an angel. That's why he doesn't sign autographs. That's why he doesn't. He didn't want to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. He was trying to challenge how people thought of him. And how people thought of celebrities in sports, but he, he wanted to be considered as an individual instead.
0: This may sound ridiculous, but he reminds me a little bit of Marlon Brando, who who really loved. You know, he he was a great actor. I don't think he liked acting, but he certainly had a very conflicted relationship with the public. And I think Russell mm. is very ambivalent about the whole thing. Does Russell have anything to say yeah. about the kind of uh, emergence of bad boys in the NBA in the last fifteen or twenty years? There have been a lot of them, and they've acted very badly. Does he ever sort of? Russell's been
1: very very careful, I would say, not to be critical of any contemporary athletes. And I don't think that's because he's trying to protect them. I think it's because he wants people considered as individuals. He's not willing to make some type of generalization about, oh, the players in the NBA are like this now, whether they're thugish or criminals or or whatever. He he doesn't want to engage in that discourse. He wants to be very careful about saying, hey, people want to when people were saying, oh, someone like Michael Jordan, shouldn't he, he get involved in politics in the way that you did and help the other African-Americans? He said, hey, Michael Jordan is just as an individual. It's not my position to, to, to tell him what to do. Uh, he's very careful about how he thinks, about how he was, uh, how he portrayed that.
0: I think, I think uh, after listening to you talk so eloquently about him, I think I've concluded that uh, Bill Russell's epitaph should be, Bill Russell, hard to like but easy to respect.
1: <laughs> it's true it's yeah. true and that's what, I mean and he would and he would like that he, would, he doesn't care if you like him, <laughs> uh what well, he cares about is if you respect him uh in that sense i because I came to respect him so much, I came to like him more than I think if i ever and I've never met Bill Russell yeah, right. uh, he's a very private person, and although I' talked to over fifty people. A lot of his close friends and teammates and relatives with this book. I never talked to Bill Russell. I never expected to from the beginning of the book, though so I tried. Uh, and I feel like having that met him, I can just simply, in some ways, might be an advantage because now I, the respect is, uh, that I have for him, filters through the book yeah. rather than any sort of sense of personal. Uh, well, he was a jerk to me, so yeah. I'm going to treat him treat him poorly in this book. Right. Right. <laughs> right, right,
0: right. Well, God, I'll say this: God bless Bill Russell. That's 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 I think what I have to say about him. So uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, airman, and thank you very much for writing the book. It's terrific. Let me ask you our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is: uh, What are you working on now? What's your uh, current project? Uh,
1: I'm trying something new. You- I uh, am writing a more sort of traditional civil rights history. I'm writing a book about the Meredith March Against Fear, which was a uh, civil rights march in 1966. uh, of June of 1966, it started with one man. It started with James Meredith, who was famous for uh, integrating Ole Miss in 1962. Mm -hmm. Four years after that, he decides that he's going to launch what he calls his March Against Fear, uh, in which he walks from Memphis, uh, and the idea was to reach Jackson, Mississippi, about 220 miles to the south. And along the way, he was going to encourage people to register to vote, and he was going to conquer this notion of, of fear that was keeping so many uh, black Mississippians from, uh, from achieving their full uh, due inequality. On the second day of, of Merritt's march, he gets shot. He survives, uh, but he, but once he's shot, it uh, compels the major civil rights organizations to come to Memphis and to take up his march. And from there on, it becomes this fascinating three-week story uh, of registering voters, of, uh, of sort of uh, conquering a, a lot of black Mississippian fears. There's all these local stories along the way to tell, and also these incredible personal uh, and political dynamics of major civil rights organizations, Martin Luther King, Stokely Carmichael, uh, Floyd McKissick, who was the head of CORE at the time. And this is at a time when SNCC and CORE are starting to uh, adopt more what we might call a national agenda. And, uh, the NAACP, Roy Wilkins, the head of the NAACP, decides that they will not participate in the march because he doesn't want it to be associated with this sort of unplanned, impromptu, three-week national demonstrations dominating the headlines. And ultimately, what the March Against Fear is most known for is about midway through the march, Stokely Carmichael unveils the slogan of Black Power. And the questions about what does Black Power mean, what's the context, uh, this, uh, it sort of, uh, Inspiring all these questions and debates about black politics uh, in the white liberal press, among African Americans themselves, and that means something very different on a national scale. That means on a local scale. It's really just I'm trying to do this sort of narrative history that, that can sweep in a lot of the new scholarship that's been done on the civil rights movement in terms of all these incredible stories of local movements and local politics. That connect that to these national to this national agenda. So I hope I can pull it off. It's a great story. Uh, I hope I'm equal to the
0: I'm sure that you are. If this book is uh, any indication, you certainly are equal to the task. Um, I should tell our listeners that we've been talking to Aram Gudsouzian about uh, his book, King of the Court, Bill Russell and the Basketball Revolution. Aram, I want to say thank you very much for spending this hour with us. I really appreciated the book, and I appreciated talking to you.
1: Thanks, Marshall. I appreciate it very
0: much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: You've been
0: listening to an interview with Aram Gudsouzian about his book, King of the Court, Bill Russell, and the Basketball Revolution. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.